You're listening to the Entrepreneur's Agony Aunt podcast. Keeping it real, telling the story like it is, because there are no mistakes that somebody else hasn't already made. Hello, I'm Vicky Brock, and you're listening to the Entrepreneur Agony Aunt podcast. My guest this week is Jamie Shankland, serial entrepreneur. He's taken products to market in 40 countries in fields as diverse as oil and gas, fashion, and now with his latest venture, Just Venue, wedding planning technology. It's safe to say he has learned a few things about business, growth, and delivery along the way. So it's a pleasure to welcome you to the podcast, Jamie. Uh, Good afternoon. Pleasure to be here, Vicky. I'm glad you could join me. So we've got a question that was submitted just a couple of days ago, actually, via the form on the website. And you know, all listeners, you can submit your question there. And somewhat summarized, it goes, I run a startup which has been on a tough journey over the last two years, but has recently raised from investors. This has allowed us to hire and build a runway for a further seven months. But we are still pre-revenue. Next year, we need four times the cash we've just raised. And I find this difficult to comprehend. We have a really exciting product and lots of customers who like what we have now. But our product needs substantial further development to include the features customers demand, which costs lots. And no customer has parted with their cash to buy what we have now. How do we balance the need to continue to develop our product with the need for cash paying customers? We're having lots of nice conversation with customers after demonstration, but is it now time to close down the nice chats and only focus on customers who will give us revenue? Despite recent successes, my mind is entirely focused on the impending cliff edge in seven months. Oh, I remember that feeling. And I would um, also question the definition of customers if they haven't bought anything. Um, and I can't wait to get your thoughts, Jamie. But perhaps you could first start by telling us about your journey as a founder and entrepreneur and how you got from oil and gas to just venue. Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a bit of a weird one. It's not typically the route or path that you might take. But I guess kind of being, as you mentioned, I hate the term serial entrepreneur. But for me, I just love doing what I'm doing. Um, so it doesn't really matter what I get involved in. In terms of oil and gas, uh, whether I'm involved in the likes of Just Venue or a other venture, I've kind of found myself on this path and it was never really planned. And the reason that I got involved in Just Venue was that I seen a need because obviously oil and gas was predominantly engineering. I've kind of taken aspects of that and put it into the event planning sector uh, or venue booking sector. So I guess it goes back to I just seen that need. I identified that there was a problem there. What happened was I was uh, approached by by my little sister. Her friend was booking an engagement party and through whatever reason, the, the, the venue pulled out at the last minute. So my little sister got in touch with me and says, look, do you know of any other suitable locations or venues within the local area that we could book for this engagement party? And I said, well, one, I've never really thought about it. And two, that's a really difficult question. So what we've done was, I've done what any normal person would do. I went to the likes of Facebook, went to Google, tried to compile a list of all the suitable venues in the local area. And I then had the problem that I was going to need to call, email, and try to get in touch with that venue. And I thought, there's got to be an easy way of doing this. I mean, this is quite a time-consuming process for, for all involved because you've got to get in touch with them. Then they've got to find the right person if they're not there, or you've got to pop it in an email. And it was just... I felt like honestly pulling my hair out. 
So and I, I was then speaking to my friend in a cafe a couple of days later, um, and I was telling him the story about my little sister's friend, and I was basically explaining the trouble that I was having finding these spaces. And when there was a, the cafe owner at the time overheard us, and she came over, and, and what she said was, she was like, look, we've started actually putting events on. We would love to be able to rent this place out. But it just so happened that the cafe wasn't really set up for taking engagement parties. And I thought, at the back of my mind, this entrepreneur thing that I've, I've got going on in my head, my, my head always goes at about a million miles an hour. And I'm thinking, there's got to be an easy way of doing this. And she obviously had space. She was wanting just, just to tell more people about that space. And I thought, there's got to be like the booking.com or the Airbnb for the events world. And, and I know that you should never really compare it to, to things that are already successful, but it, that was in the back of my mind. I'm like, we need a platform that's going to revolutionize and take events forward, make it easier and simpler. That's kind of the path that I ended up on because I identified that need, thought there's got to be an easier way of doing this. So I basically set off to create it. Now, at that time, oil and gas was kind of taking a dip. The price of oil had went down. Everybody was basically trying to stop all the projects going ahead because they, were, they didn't have any money. And I thought, well, now's the time to kind of diversify from what I'm doing, predominantly being in oil and gas. I've got a wee bit of money left over. What I'll do is I'll take that and I'll put it into something that I could see a need for. And it just so happened that it all kind of lined up around about the same time. So mm -hmm. yeah, that's, that's how we ended up where we are. You saw a problem and you actually got customer validation in effect or market validation from, from the cafe, but... I mean, I, I know the work that you've been doing recently, you've been going out talking to lots and lots of venues and getting that validation. Coming back to the person that's asked the question, um, and I actually do know the company. Um, they have a particularly innovative product. They were under lots of pressure to produce a prototype because people didn't believe that their basic idea could work. So they had to spend a lot of time and money to prove the concept. But I think that they're at a really interesting point. And there's some of the things that, that worry me in the question a little bit that I'd really love to explore with you. Yeah, what were your first thoughts, actually? Was it, is it a physical product or is it a, an actual tech piece of software? It's a physical product. It's a physical product. It's quite a substantial physical product that would go out to, you know, locations. So it'd be portable. So what I kind of got from them is, is the obviously regarding the belief. In, all, in anything that you do, you've, you've got to have a belief. You've got to have an, a, like an insane amount of belief in what you're doing. And you've almost got to be blind to what else is going on, like, like kind of like a tunnel vision. But you also need to speak to people. And I'm wondering from that question if they've actually been out and spoken to their customers. They, they mentioned in the, in, in the sort of brief that they have customers. But as you rightly said in, in kind of the intro there, are they really customers if they're not paying? Um, yeah. Or are they just people who's, who's almost like tire kicking? And the, the real validation is if you get someone to put their hand in their pocket and actually pay for something, that's you almost validating that your idea is no longer an idea and actually something that someone wants. And I guess you've, you've, you've kind of got to, it's all about speaking to people, isn't it? I've also got a bit of, um, when, it, when it mentions chats, I would like mm -hmm. to dig a wee bit deeper to see what they mean by a chat because every day we all have chats, but there's, there's almost got to be an outcome to them. There has to be, uh, like for, for example, if, if, if I'm meeting you for a coffee, then there's no real agenda there. Um, we might just be meeting up to, to kind of catch up and see 
what each other's been kind of working on. But I'm guessing that from their question, they're talking about customers here. And whenever you speak to, to customers, you've almost got to have an outcome. I've had a, a physical product. So we had a product that we sold to oil companies, right? And that was a physical product that gets sent, shipped, built on site, and the, the customers use it. But then I've also got this tech-based product as well, which is there's no actual physical thing. It's more a platform and a website. You, you mentioned that you sold products into oil and gas sector. Um, yeah. I mean, that must be quite a tough sector to, to crack as a startup. Yes. Did you take a specific business development process? I mean, how did you think about that? Having You, you mentioned having an outcome to your chats. That is super important. Otherwise, you get nowhere. But, but did you have a structured process or develop one as you went along? You've got to go to market and you've got to really start to understand your customers, okay? I think that whenever you meet someone, they always think, what's in it for me? So when we meet our customers, specifically within the oil and gas, anytime that we were meeting them, they're always thinking, what's in it for me? And if you can tailor what it is that you're actually delivering, so like, it's, it's almost like that you need to know everything about your industry and you're almost educating those users on the best method for solving their problem. And I guess from speaking to customers and people uh, who are who are potential customers, they're the actual users. They're the people who are going to tell you what they want. And I guess if they're going to put their hand in their pocket and pay for that, then that's you validating that idea, if that makes sense. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I strongly think you don't have customers until you've got somebody paying for something. Yeah. You've got potential, you know, you've got prospects, but you're, you are conducting research. You, you, you're mm-hmm. validating your market and validating all sorts of things until somebody's paying. And even then, they're not, I think, really customers until they're not just paid for a, a kind of like quick bit of consultancy or a really discounted pilot. They've actually committed to buying some, a solution of some kind. Yeah. Um, and it is a challenging place to get to, but mm-hmm. it's also a really scary place because – it's terrifying when you've done a lot of work building something and people mm-hmm. are, are just not that into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and people are just not that into it for a couple of reasons. Either you're talking to the wrong people, you're mm-hmm. talking in the wrong language, like you were really not answering well, the what's in it for me, mm-hmm. or your um, solution is just not that big a deal. <laughs> and yeah. that's the most terrifying one of all. I know, yeah. I mean... As, as like entrepreneurs and, and, and people who want to go out and kind of solve problems for people, we, we, we kind of, we have this, like with, with, with Just Venue, for example, we've got so many ideas, so many things that we could be creating off the back of what we're doing. But sometimes we almost need to focus that in and say, right, what's the underlying problem that we're trying to solve here? Well, we're trying to make it easier for people to find and book spaces. Everything else over and above that is just based on assumptions that we are making. So if it was ideas, like we, we wouldn't be doing what we're doing. I mean, everybody's got ideas. I mean, I have about a million ideas. I've got a book that's just full of ideas. And some of them I put on shelves and some of them, they stay in the book and they'll probably never, ever come out. But I mean, we've all got ideas. It's, it's just understanding that the problem for the customer and almost kind of being that expertise, giving them the trust that you know what you're talking about and, and you're the right person to deliver that solution. Because at the end of the day, business is between two people. We're all humans at the end of the day. 
And basically, you're just trying to establish a connection with that other person to solve their needs. The best companies, they're the ones that speak to the users and get the learnings. Oil and gas, right? Anything oil and gas is going to be expensive. And we had that same issue where we were designing, building something, and it was a huge outlay. Like the amount of money that went into actually designing, developing, taking it through certification, putting a patent in, protecting our intellectual property, taking it along that journey is is a huge sum of money. And it's a really scary place to be because especially if you've got these added pressures from investment, yeah, it's, it's, it's a really scary place to be because as soon as you start getting into the realms of investment and people want to see return on, on their investment back, then you almost take your eye off what it is you're doing in the first place because you've now got board meetings, you've now got uh, people that you have to go see, financial forecasting that you've got to do for them, all these added pressures and constraints. I almost wonder if this company is trying too hard to sell. Yeah, I, I think. I mean, I have to agree with you on the investment side of stuff. They mentioned that they've got seven months of money left, so they're not quite into the horror zone of having three months money left, which is when you really, you know, your decisions and your choices become very, very limited when you're in that space. They've still got enough time where they could customer fund their next phase. If they found the right customer, they structured that deal correctly and they got that money out of that customer. Um, You know, they're still within the time frame where customer funded growth, which is the holy grail of all of these mm-hmm. things is is possible. But they talk about investors a lot in a very short space of time. And I do suspect they are in that place where they're suddenly dancing to the wrong master. They're trying to please the investor. They're getting all of this different feedback, some of which probably completely contradicts the other investor feedback. And they're now trying to do all of this stuff to to do what their investors think they should be doing. And their eye is probably, or their ear, is maybe off the customer a little bit. In terms of hearing what their potential customer really has to say. And I I mean, I made that same mistake myself. If, if I hadn't been spending, I know I've talked about this before in podcasts, but if I hadn't spent the best part of three years permanently raising money, I would have had a hell of a lot more customer conversations and I would mm-hmm. have picked up very very quickly where our value proposition wasn't necessarily landing accurately with the whole buying unit. And mm-hmm. you know, at the beginning, we were really, really good. My um, co-founder is, is from a product management b- background, and he was fantastic at being in a conversation, really listening, not trying to sell, but have a conversation about pain and problem and what would life look like if that problem was solved And he was amazingly good at that. And that let us really focus super narrowly on a market segment and then focus on really solving their problem as opposed to going and having sales conversations, which I think are really different things. Yeah. I mean, I mean, like you say, that's that's the issue. It's, it's that added pressure on top in it. That's it's a whole different ballgame going into investors. Uh, venture capitalists, investors, people that put money into things want to obviously see the return on investment. I guess we're kind of slightly different in Just Venue that I've been self-funding it so far. It's a wee bit easier, but it also comes with added pressure because essentially at the end of the day, it's, it's my money, as weird as that sounds. But it's just, it's 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 still a pressure. And, and I actually found myself being 
trapped into that as well. So when we launched Just Venue, I was almost out there. I was telling people about all these exciting things that we were doing. We were going to revolutionize the way that people do event bookings. And I almost got to a stage where I was just out telling people about it. But there was no real pressure because we were building the product behind the scenes. So we were just, I was just basically out there telling people about all these great things that were kind of coming. But then you get to the point where you've built your MVP or your like revenue product or whatever you may, you, you may call it. Once you've built that, that's when the pressure kind of heightens up a wee bit because now you've got to try to get these paying customers to come through your platform. And the way that I started going out, I maybe changed because I was almost, I went into a sales mode now. So I wasn't, I was no longer telling people about the sort of benefit of the product. I was almost trying to convince people that it was the best thing since sliced bread for them. Um, so when I was meeting these these venue owners now, I've kind of changed the way that I was talking to them. So I'm now saying to them, look, you need to be on this platform. And I was almost, rather than telling them the benefits to it, I felt like I was trying to sell to them. And I think that that could be the reason why they're kind of struggling as well. Maybe they've got, as you said, the sort of, the wrong person either outselling to them or they've kind of got the wrong approach to, to selling or they're maybe just coming across as too salesy and, and not actually managing to convert those users because nobody likes to be sold to. Yeah, And it could be that they're not necessarily talking to the right person. And I found this was a big challenge because when I was selling to enterprises, obviously there's a lot of different people in the mix. And it would often be people in innovation that would bring us into their company first. So somebody would see me speaking at something, go, oh, this is cool. You need to come in and meet us. And my very first point of contact with, was with innovation. The innovation, their role is to go around and hoover up good ideas and introduce them to the rest of the business. They don't buy any of these ideas. So then you have to be navigated through to find the buying unit and you know, identify who in there is the champion versus the decision maker, identifying whose budget it's going to come out of. And you might have done something super innovative, but it's really important to understand what what line item on the budget is that going to replace? Or is there some existing pot that you can go, actually, we're just like this, we can sit into this spend that's already been scheduled. Otherwise, you're waiting an entire year before they're getting into budget planning. How did you handle that with oil and gas? Were you bringing completely new technology? Yeah, so we're quite in a a fortunate position with our product kind of has a few different slants to it. So we were actually, we save companies money by using our product. So the idea behind the product is that you you would build it on a facility. So if you have to do maintenance work, et cetera, you, you build this on a facility and people can go inside and do maintenance activities whilst the rig around them is still producing so obviously there's there's a clear benefit to cost because you don't have to shut down your facility you could continue doing the maintenance whilst the oil around you is still flowing but on the other side of that it's also a safety product because what we used to do is we used to segregate the the enclosure from the outside world so that if a gas or something tried to come into contact with the the maintenance activity it couldn't happen so our product was slightly different because if the price of oil is really high, then they would still buy our product. If the price of oil was really low, then they would still buy our product. And the reason mm-hmm. being is because we were kind of saving money, pr- promoting a, a safety benefit to them and ultimately solving a problem that they had. So we were quite in a fortunate position with that. But again, we, st- we still had, just like you, uh, Vicky, we still had a lot of different people that we had to kind of please. 
So the, the initial person that you meet might not necessarily be the, the decision maker, but they might be able to help influence the decision maker, or they might just be someone from procurement. They might be from like for us for health and safety. We had a lot of different people that we had to please and a lot of red tape that we had to jump through in order to get it onto a facility. But once we actually managed to uh, get our first customer and actually show them the benefits and show them the, the, the sort of cost impact that it would have on their business and the savings that they were going to make, it then made that whole process easier because we now had a clear case study. So we used to we used to use case studies um, to obviously tell other operators what we'd done. And we almost started to build up this picture in this sort of big book of case studies that we would go to and say, look, we've saved this client X amount of money. We could do the same for you. And that's when it really gets interesting. It goes back to that. Everybody you meet, they always think, what's in it for me? And when you look at decision makers, they're almost putting their name to something, right? Yeah. And like for us, it's a it's a big risk for them to put a new piece of equipment that they've not been familiar with. Obviously, they've got all this information to say it's the best product since sliced bread, and you, you've got all this marketing information that tells them it's the, the best product ever. But it's almost like somebody needs to kind of take that leap of faith with you and sign on the on on the line, basically, just to say, look, we're we're happy to put this in our facility. It, it could come back to them. It's, I mean, if if you think about, it, they're actually signing off on something. They're signing off to say that there's money coming out of that company, and it'll come back to not specifically the product, but to them. And they'll be saying, "Well, you made that decision." Their job and their budgets at risk. When when people in enterprises buy products from a startup or even services, their job is at risk. And I think as as entrepreneurs, we we need to spend more time thinking about that and actually understanding what's at stake for the customer and you know not just what's in it for them but what could they lose if this all goes wrong because risk is a far bigger barrier than than benefit really if it all goes right fine they, they may get a pat on the head unlikely it'll just get ignored yeah, whereas if it all goes wrong they lose their job i'm quite interested in how how you structured those very early deals in order to de-risk it a little bit. Yeah, so I was I was quite fortunate that I I'd, I've kind of been involved in the oil industry since quite a young age. So I had a lot of experience within that. So when when I was going in to to meet people, I could talk the same language as them. So I was kind of going in from not from a salesman point of view. I was going in with I know that this is the best product for you because. And what we were doing is we were really kind of understanding their business and what they were trying to achieve and what their goals were. And it was really just about kind of tailoring what they were needing based on what our product done because there's so many different, and I guess it depends on who you're speaking to as well. So I, I know examples where we've met, we've met the guy at the top of the company, like CEOs, chief executives, managing directors, people that really have the influence. But then at the other side, I've came across like procurement people who have been in touch with us or health and safety people, or people who were involved in maybe like the actual operations of the, the oil rigs, and they've got to get approval from X, Y, and Z, and it kind of goes up the chain. And sometimes with, with the oil and gas thing, I found that there's no right and wrong way to approach it, because sometimes the, the guy at the top is so far disconnected from what's going on in the operation side of things that he doesn't actually realize or understand the need. But then you've got the guy who's at the operations side of things who understands the need and can, can see the benefits to it, but he really doesn't have the influence to say, let's buy one of those or let's rent one of those pieces of equipment. 
Um, so you've kind of got to attack it from all angles and influence a whole lot of different people. And it's about talking to them in the way that you want to be talked to. So, I mean, if I was going in to speak to someone, say, for example, in uh, like health and safety, I would want to tailor my language to the benefits of what the product could have done for them in a health and safety setting. There's no point in talking to them about how much is going to save them money or uh, production figures or all these other things that are kind of going on. But if I was meeting, say, the, the guy at the top of the company, I'm, I want to promote almost all the benefits because he's probably looking at cost, he's looking at health and safety, he's looking at um, removing the risk from explosion from their facilities, he's looking at like all these different things. So it's, it's really understanding your audience. Yeah, it's, and it's, their motivation because I think, I mean, I'd love to get back to the chats thing because I think, no, 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 because I think this is one of the things that comes in. I did realize after a while that there were certain types of people and certain job roles where they loved me to come in for a chat. You know, it was intellectually stimulating. They'd take a meeting with me anytime because we could talk about all of the stuff. And they had a great meeting. And eventually I realized that I'd learned everything I was going to learn about this role, this company. At this point, this, this wasn't taking a sale any further down the line. This was just somebody who enjoyed talking to somebody different. And that was really tied to what, you know, what their motivation is, why are we even having this conversation? Can they make a decision? What does success look like to them? And I found that there were certain people that were really hoping and motivated by trying something shiny and new because they thought, oh, if I try something shiny and new, I can check off some boxes that we're doing this. I can look to my peers like I'm very cutting edge and we can all keep in, I can keep personally stimulated and interested by trying new things. And I found that that was the group of people that often briefed back tons of feature requests, like an endless stream of feature requests and product feedback. But actually, in the end, they were not remotely representative of the mainstream market. They weren't representative of a customer and they weren't the deals I should have been doing or investing my time in. But boy, you know, they were enjoyable chats. Yeah, and, and, and I mean, that's the thing. I mean, if you look at what a chat is, if there's if there's not enough intent or like a clear outcome from it, then what's the point in having the chat? A chat for me is like, it's almost like planting a seed for kind of like a longer term outcome or g gathering knowledge. If there's no real agenda behind the chat, then it's just a chat. So like I said earlier on, sitting down for with a coffee for someone, to see how you can help them or getting together for a catch-up doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to do business with them. You're almost trying to solve a problem for them at that specific time and then you're that kind of go-to person where they want to get in touch with you or do X, Y, and Z and, and, and ask you for help and support. I mean, that's great. But, I mean, when you usually, when you meet people, you don't necessarily expect anything back. I think you've got to go into, you've got to kind of change that term from, from, from a chat into something that's got meaning and, and it's got a, a real powerful conversation and sort of clear outcome from it. So, I mean, if you're if you're meeting the person for with the intent of trying to close them or push them over the line or along your kind of pipeline, then that's what you should go in with. I found this within oil and gas. I was maybe quite a bit naive because I'm not a salesman by any stretch of the imagination. And I was going in with that 
I understood the, the the customer's need. I understood the um the problem that they were having. I could talk in the same language as them, but what I didn't really do was I wasn't really firm enough with them, and I didn't really say to the people that I was meeting, "Are you the decision maker?" or "How do we push this along to the next step?" or "What's the next? Let's make an action now." That in a, a week's time, if I've not heard from you, then this is what we'll do. And I think you've almost got to have a bit of a backbone and just kind of speak up. And I think, I, I don't know if it was just specifically me, but I found that quite difficult to do at first. But now I have no problem doing it. <laughs> because yeah. it, it's, you know, I it's, agree. It, I had to be taught that. Um, I had to be taught it. I had somebody come in and do some sales training with me, which was basically around how to frame those conversations very, very quickly to qualify. Because yeah. uh, I'd had lots of chats loads and loads of chats going to events and I had mistaken a good chat with a prospect. And yes. what I came to learn was, you know, chats don't belong anywhere on your sales pipeline. Chats are the bit that you go out and they're almost kind of like exactly the same as your social media and exactly the same as your events marketing and everything else. They're really, really early stage lead farming or lead cultivation or spotting possible interest they're not your sales pipeline and you can't treat it like it. So you have to go through this process of then very robustly qualifying people in or out. And, and somebody saying no is a great thing. And But 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 by asking those questions that identifies their problem, asks if you could provide them with a solution to that, would they be able to buy that? Is this something that they would be looking to solve in the next year or the next six months, whatever, where you get a little bit of urgency. And if you haven't done that kind of qualifying, you can't treat them in any way, shape or form as leads. It's really helpful, yeah. really helpful process to go through, actually. Yeah, I mean, it's it's tough because, as you said, people love to sit and chat all day long. And sometimes the people that you're meeting are almost justifying their job role within what they're doing because they're like yeah we've got a meeting here with with uh, vicky today she's going to come in and, and, and they're almost justifying their position but if they're like you said if they're not the right person to make the decisions then you're almost wasting your time you're better putting that focus and energy into someone who does rather than just going around in circles meeting people for coffees or you, you could waste a lot of time doing that and i guess like all these meetups and things that you could go along to unless you can really start to see who could kind of give you some value you, you can't waste a lot of time yeah and you can't delude yourself because if you like if you go into your board meetings or your investor meetings going there's you know you know i've had 15 chats and i'm expecting three of those to turn into leads and one of those to turn into a sale and then they don't you know three months down the line six months down the line it's your job that's on the line, your head, yep. your investment, and you're running out of money. So if you can be super disciplined with yourself to kind of pick away some of that delusion from yourself that am I really talking to a prospect or not, you'll benefit. Yeah, I, I was I was actually involved in a company who was who was purchased by uh, venture capitalists, and these these guys basically came in, kind of stripped everything out of the company, had a sort of management reshuffle, had done all these things right changed basically changed the the whole thing up and there was there was a couple of sales guys who came into that process that were obviously headhunted and brought in didn't for me didn't really understand the business didn't understand the problem that they were trying to solve they were out kind of having chats with people and it, it goes back to that what's in it for me for them at that specific time was it's all about 
justifying my job role here. It's about fabricating leads or uh, kind of extending the the extent of what actually was a lead for them. So they would have all these chats, but nothing would actually come of them. And they actually say, for example, a job was coming in, they would be like, oh, yeah, I spoke to that person a week ago at an event or and they would kind of start trying to claim work. So that's the, that could be a problem as well. If, um, Definitely. Yeah. With your um, oil and gas product, mm-hmm. how far along the line of finished was it when you got your first sale, even if that was a pilot sale? Probably took us about two years to design, develop, patent and and we were actually really really fortunate that in in between this time i was obviously up to to other things at the same time just trying to keep busy because uh, obviously there was there was a huge involvement in that but i had periods in between that so i got involved in other stuff because i actually partnered with a company so the company that uh, i partnered with they had a long-standing history so i was doing a bit of work for them a bit of consultancy in between doing and launching our product um, and I was following up their old leads our very first actual customer the, the managing director he met him on a plane and they were just sitting next to each another and I'm like I know that guy so I, I basically followed up it just so happened that he was going to be in uh, in the local area and I said look come out to the factory and see what we're working on and what happened was we had him there for some something completely different and he was almost walking across the, flat, the factory floor and he said what is that thing there? And I explained about the, and I explained what the product was. And he says, I'm sure we were talking about that in a meeting just a few days ago. Let me go phone someone and find out. Anyway, he couldn't, he couldn't get in touch with the right person, but it turned out that's what they were talking about. Um, <laughs> they were talking about a problem that they had, and it just so happened that he was walking across the factory floor, and he remembered that they had that problem, and they were looking for a solution. So we hadn't even finished testing or certifying the equipment or doing anything. And he, he they were already wanting to kind of buy the UK rights to that product. But that's so important that you hadn't finished it. My first sale in my last business was exactly the same. They'd heard me and read, they'd read some stuff I'd been talking about. They'd probably seen a video of me speaking. And her and her colleague came to this event specifically to come and talk to me. And they came over and said, that problem that you keep talking about, we've got that problem. We'd really Mm -hmm. like you to solve it for us. And so I went over and met with them. My technology was probably like maybe 60% done. Um, But they, they were really keen. They gave us lots of input. Obviously, software is way, way easier than hardware. But um, I priced that deal in a way that like you're, it's not completely finished yet. The price, the commercial price would be X you're getting this deal, which is significantly less. And in exchange, I really need a case study. Please let us talk about results. Please let us PR this and enter lots of awards. And we'll innovate on you and you'll get, you know, we'll keep you up to speed with all the new features as we do them. And that was such a win-win. And we got that one over the line and that was our first customer. And it was really interesting because we could have kept working on the product forever and then gone out and sell it. And I well, would have run out of money if we'd done that. You need to reach out to people before you've actually finished. Because you're like, like, we, like we were saying earlier on, we're solving a problem. We're not, it's, it's, the product's only that thing that solves the problem, but it's really the underlying problem that we're trying to solve every time. So yeah, no, we, we, we were just really lucky as well that we'd kind of been proactively going out to, to companies and stuff as well and saying this is what, 
we've been doing, this is what we're working on, and, and that's what we're doing with the, the venue booking thing. Throughout that whole process, before we'd even started designing a product, we'd spoke to multiple people along the way and says, look, if I could design you the best piece of software in the world, what would it do? And it's like needs and wants, isn't it? You need to kind of think of the things that are, are going to solve the need, but there's things in there that, yeah, it'd be good to have, but you kind of need to push them to one side and solve that underlying problem. And I think once you do that, I mean, people will put their hand in their pocket and, and pay for things. It's... If the problem is there and it's urgent enough and they gain from it being solved and you can communicate how they gain from being solved, then you really do need to be pushing that into a closing conversation. How yeah. many where, well, you know, how can we structure this deal so that you get everything you need and we can de-risk this for you? It's a, it's a good example you used there as well when you're saying where, where your product's not actually finished being designed yet. Going back to the oil and gas stuff, that product helped save money. So if I could go to a client and say, well, you're going to save two million pounds a day or 10 million pounds or whatever it may be that the product helps save because that's typically what an asset in the in the north sea might produce um in revenue per day the cost of your product for them to actually almost invest in the the product and and, and be early adopters and just give them a better price and say look this is what we're trying to do if we build this will you give us an order for x and and that's a lot. That's an easier conversation to have than going at them when you've built something and it doesn't really fit the need because now they're thinking, well, it's a good product, but it doesn't solve what we're trying to do. Mm-hmm. So yeah, yeah, product market fit in the end. Yeah, and that it's is huge. such an iterative process, and in the end, it's all driven by the customer, listening to the customer, and responding to the customer. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I remember saying this to my uh, my old boss at the time. I says, look, without without our customers we're nothing and he said that's cheesy and i said no but it's it's true it's without our customers we are nothing like they're, they're, we wouldn't even exist it, it, like doing what we're doing and he says yeah but there's always someone who's going to buy from you and i'm like yeah but the reason they're buying is because we're solving that need for them and they are our customers and we only exist for them and i'm like we should be bending over backwards to try to accommodate within reason obviously to accommodate their needs and subsequently their business is no more <laughs> so um yeah yeah it's, if you don't uh, do what your customers are saying and adapt to what industry is telling you or what what, what the sort of uh, market is demanding at that specific point then your business will will be no longer seven months is a long time i think it's doable. i know it, it, yeah it doesn't it doesn't seem like um i've just done a quick calculation that's 5110 hours right it, 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 over that over that time but that seems a lot of time I definitely think it's it's doable. Yeah. It it might not seem it. Uh, it's always like when you look back at these things, you think seven months, not really. It will come in quick, but it's still a lot of time to change and try to do things. Just out of curiosity, is it saving? A, is it saving customers money? It, is yeah, it, it just it's saving them? It's it's not anything like your oil and gas technology. But the reason I gave you this question is it's it's so comparable. It, it's kind of a manufacturing process that speeds up delivery and therefore kind of means that they can sell more it's kind of like the equivalent of being able to keep the oil running but just for a completely different industry i definitely think seven months is enough you know i i sat there facing a cliff if i could turn three months cash into six months cash we could absolutely nail what we needed to do with enterprise sales but six months is enough 
if you're insanely focused, if you have the value proposition right, and if you focus on closing deals as opposed to chats and feature development and you know worrying about investors at this point yeah and that's that's the trouble i mean you see a lot of these like companies who are out just actively raising funds all the time you're right in what you say that turns into a full-time job role where you're just chasing the investment and you're not actually chasing what it is you're trying to do i I find this as well as that sometimes it it depends on the, the type of person who's doing the selling so is it the person the founder who might know the most about that product and when they're going in to, to sell it to someone who's a non-technical person are they trying to oversell it or I find this a lot with with specifically engineering companies like they might have the most technologically advanced solution on the market but if the audience is not the right audience that you're selling that to it's yeah. it's almost like you're onto a lost leader before you've even started because um, and and obviously we, we were involved in Scottish Edge just in the last week and we were up doing doing a talk we went up with a story behind our with our pitch but there's there was a lot of technical founders there who were talking technical oh, which yeah. is great and I've been an edge judge um I wasn't this time but I, I've, I've been an edge judge many a time and there's times where I've actually wanted to bash my head against the table and go Stop telling me about technology and start telling me about benefits, the business, the market, and your customer. Because <laughs> yeah. you've only got two minutes left now. Don't, don't spend all of your 10 minutes on the technology. I would imagine at this point, I, I don't know the answer, but I would imagine at this point in time, like all of us, it's you know super early stage and it's the founders that are outgoing, doing the selling, yeah. trying to learn what they can about selling, probably not feeling like natural, comfortable salespeople, and also... From that place of founder optimism, where you know you just that you have to have that level of belief that is so off scale high in order to be doing this, that sometimes I think your off the scale high settings prevent you from hearing what you need to hear from the market about what isn't quite landing. Yeah, uh, I mean, mean, I've I've kind of noted down. Obviously, we talked about belief earlier on, but. Another key thing that I think that you need is is persistence. So you need you need to just be persistent with it as well. I mean, over the course of everything that I've ever been involved in, there's always people who are going to say no to you. Um, but it's just a case of pushing that behind you and moving on. And and, and like I said, if you you need to kind of like firm up the reason why you're 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 meeting them and 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 just be really persistent with it. So I've I've kind of noted like belief persistence and being firm mm-hmm. um it's kind of the, the the main things that you need to be you need to be clear on that intent i don't know if you've ever had the, the pleasure of uh meeting bob keeler I you met bob keeler before? yes chairman yeah enterprises i have uh, i did storytelling training with him a while back which was fascinating yeah bob is probably one of the most interesting people apart from you vicky <laughs> that i have uh that i've ever had the pleasure of meeting um, I want and, him on this podcast to talk about storytelling, but I, I shall yeah, back he's, him for he's, that in a while. He is. He's just like the way that he articulates his stories and just tells a story. It's it's just amazing. If you ever like, if anyone's listening ever gets the opportunity to go along to to hear Bob Keeler talk about his storytelling, it's for for me anyway. It's kind of life changing the way that he talks about. It. But I remember him telling me the story about um a, a job that he was kind of tendering for. I think it was in Africa, and Basically, so this tender came out. Him and his the the CEO at the time jump on a plane and travelled all the way to the other side of the world to Africa to find out what the customer wanted. 
right and i can remember him telling me this story obviously he'll he'll tell this story so much better than me if you could ever get him on your show but he talks about the spice girl theory i don't know if you've ever heard this i haven't no so what he said is that he went to this customer who now bearing in mind they put this tender document out that had all the requirements of of everything that was needed for the job but they actually they decided to jump on the plane travel to the other side of the world and speak to the person directly and they basically they, they got out there and they said look tell me what you want and the guy says well i want the best service i want the best x y and z everything that you would kind of expect to have as part of that package and uh, bob says no tell me what you really really want <laughs> and and what you're actually doing is and it, it turns out that at that time it was uh, that they wanted like a local labor content and they wanted uh, local people to be in work. So what they done was they went all the way back to the other side of the world again, changed the, the, the tender that they were going to submit, which kind of ticked off all those boxes anyway, and put a real focus on basically this, this labor content. And they subsequently won the work from that, right? Yeah. But what that really, and I guess this is maybe the problem that the founders having is that they're maybe going in, but they're not asking what they really really want from yeah. from what they're doing and and i i find that people are they'll always like pe- people love ideas and they'll go yeah that's a great idea and they'll never usually say to your face that's a terrible idea i don't know why you're doing that that's that, that, that's not going to fit in here um but what they'll do is they'll just say that's a great idea maybe that's why they're not converting them into customers because they're not asking them what they really really want brilliant and thank you jamie you've been listening to vicky brock and jamie shanklin this week's entrepreneur agony Arts. you can subscribe on itunes spotify and submit your question at vickybrock.com slash podcast <laughs> <laughs>